All right, Galatians 3 is where we are. I only read to you the two bookends, uh, the first verse and then the verses at the very end, but I'm actually going to try to explain the entire chapter very briefly before we get into some serious discussion of it. Um, The book of Galatians, you'll remember, we've kind of tracked the way Paul has been arguing. Uh, Why is he so upset? Y'all can answer this, I think. Now, why, why is Paul so upset? Because they're turning, right? We saw last week there are actually two different ways that you can lose the gospel in your life. Even even as a professing Christian, you can either lose it through legalism or moralism, which is one side of the road, one ditch that you can fall into. But then you can also fall into the opposite ditch uh, of antinomianism, which is saying that God's law doesn't matter and, and you know I can live however I want because I'm saved by grace. You could also call that relativism. Paul is mainly angry at at the Galatians because they've been listening to teachers who've been pushing legalism or moralism. And they're doing that because they came from a Jewish background. And as good Jews, uh, they really prided themselves in the gift of God's law. And so they they had, from that great gift, derived the wrong conclusion that you could actually be saved by keeping the law. And Paul says you can't be saved in God's eyes by keeping the law. In fact, the reason why is... No one actually does keep the law. No matter how good you think you are, cheer up, you're worse than you think. That's the message of the Bible. Uh, You don't know the half of it. Uh, You you probably only know the slightest uh, fraction of how bad you really are, according to Scripture. You say, well, that's offensive. Yeah, it is kind of offensive, but it's a good kind of offensive because it leaves you open for the message of the gospel, which is right down the middle of the road, Jesus uh, if, there, if we are saved by our own works, Paul said at the end of chapter 2, then Christ died for no reason. But we know, he says, as Christians, Christ didn't die for no reason. And if the Son of God had to die to save me and had to die to save you, that means he's the only way you can be saved. God would not have gone through such trouble. He would not have paid such a high cost if it was a little bit of you meet God halfway. Or you do this, God does that. None of that is on the table here. It's either all grace or not at all. That's the main point of the whole book of Galatians. Well, here in chapter 3, notice how he begins. And this is what I've titled tonight's study. Dearest fools. (laughs) Because that's how he begins. You foolish Galatians. Dear dear fools, uh, my sweet, lovely, wonderful fools. That's Paul's uh, attitude at this point towards the Galatians. Now, he had earned a lot of credibility to be able to say that. Uh, he, he, well, he started the church in Galatia. He's the one that first brought them the gospel. They never had known about Jesus until Paul came. And so, in a way, Paul was like their spiritual father. And so he's able to say stuff that's kind of strong and slightly offensive, and yet he knows they're still going to love him and they're still going to be able to receive his word. You foolish Galatians, dearest fools... Now, what we got to pay attention to here, though, is why he's using such strong language. Why does he call fellow, a fellow Christian a fool? I mean, doesn't Jesus say, don't call people fools? He does say that, right? In, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, he says, don't call people a fool. In fact, he says, if you call someone a fool, you're, you're liable to hell fire, he says, in, in Matthew 5. Why does Paul do it then? What does fool mean in the Bible? Is Paul simply saying fool as an insult? 
No, I don't think so. Uh, Paul is not being insulting. There actually is a rich um, history behind the word fool in the Bible. Uh, if you know uh, the, the Psalms uh, well, or if you know the Proverbs well, uh, the fool is contrasted with the wise person over and over again. For example, in uh, Psalm 16, it says, The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. Uh, and then in Proverbs, it says, you know, something like, The wise man listens to advice. The fool refuses to hear the many counselors. Something like that. Uh, again, those places, the word fool is not being used just as an epithet. It's not being used as a slanderous, um, you know, I'm, I'm missing my word. What's my word? Uh, an insult. That's what I'm trying to find. It's not just used as an insult to try to put somebody down. Uh, fool is used in a kind of technical way for somebody who acts as if God is not real. According to the Bible, not just atheists, but any of us, when we act as if God's not real in our lives, we're acting the fool. And the Bible turns around and says to us, dearest fools, dearest fools, you need to listen to this because you're not factoring God into the picture. You're thinking about your life as if your life was just you and a bunch of other fellow human beings and random chance events in nature or whatever it is, but you're not factoring in the most important factor, which is that there's a God in heaven, that that God has a plan, and that God is working out the plan. So when Paul says, dearest fools, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that because they, instead of being content with Jesus, right down the middle of the road of salvation, that they're, they're being duped into believing that you've got to be saved through your works. Therefore, what, is, what are they doing? They're acting as if Christ died for nothing. They're acting as if God, the God of the gospel, is not actually real. That's a big deal, wouldn't you say? And it's something that Paul feels like he needs to correct uh, with all the arguments that he can muster. So real quick, I'm, I'm going to run down this chapter and it's going to be so fast. You're going to love it, I think. Uh, because you're going to see some things in here that are very helpful, but then we're going to spend some time discussing it. Uh, there are three things that Paul uh, bases his, um, his rebuke of the Galatians on. Okay, Three things, and I want to show them to you just real quick. Uh, you can actually find them all in verses 1 through 18. Three things. The first thing he says is, look at your Christian experience. Look at your Christian experience. I'm calling you a fool, Galatians, because you're acting as if God's not real. Look at your Christian experience to argue with your own heart. Look at what he says. Who has bewitched you? Verse 1. Before your very eyes, Christ Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. What's he talking about there? Christ was clearly portrayed crucified. The Galatians lived thousands of miles away from where Christ was crucified. What does he mean, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified before your eyes? They didn't see it. What do you think? He presented it. Yeah, he presented it. It's not that Paul's saying, I drew a picture for you. I don't think Paul drew a crucifix uh, in front of the church. But it's saying, it's as if the preaching that Paul gave, which is always true of, of real, true biblical preaching, it paints a picture uh, before you that's undeniable of the love of God, of the mercy and grace of God, and of what God was willing to do out of that love and out of that grace and mercy. 
And that's why he goes on to say, I, I would just like to learn one thing from you. I want to ask you one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard when I portrayed Christ clearly before you as crucified? Christian experience. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did God give you the Holy Spirit because you were a good person? Did God give you the Holy Spirit because you were a better prayer than somebody? Or a better Bible reader? Or a better No, none of those reasons. Although those things are wonderful to do and to learn how to do, none of those are the reason why God gives anybody the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit, he says, simply in this way, by believing what you heard. You hear the message of the cross, you believe it, and boom, the Holy Spirit is given. He comes into your life with all his power to forgive, to cleanse, to change you, to make you a different person. He starts that process to equip you to serve your fellow Christians, to give you gifts of the Holy Spirit, to serve the church. But none of that came because you earned it. And so he says again, verse 3, Are you so foolish? Again, dearest fools, if you began by, the, by means of the Holy Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So I ask you again, does God give his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? The answer is obvious. If, this is what he's saying. If the Christian life starts with simply believing a message of what God has done for you rather than you doing something for God, then guess what? The Christian life continues by you hearing the message of what God has done for you and believing it. Uh, it's the gospel believed more deeply that is actually the dynamic power of the Christian life. It's not leaving the gospel behind to go on to deeper things. It's getting the gospel deeper into you that changes you in a radical way, according to Paul. And he says this is the same thing that Abraham experienced, verse 6. Abraham, it says in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God. And God credited it to him as righteousness. He got the same thing. He, Abraham didn't get the blessing because he was a good person. He wasn't a good person. He got it because God spoke to him, a free promise of what God would do, not what Abraham would do. And Abraham said, yes, Lord, I believe it. I accept it. That's the first thing. He says, look at your Christian experience, and you'll know you're being foolish by trying to veer off of Jesus. Now, remember, they were going this way into legalism. But it, the same thing, you could say all these same things if someone was veering off this way. If someone was saying, you know what, because I'm saved by grace, I can live however I want to live. There is no real right or wrong. You can't tell me what to do. God can't tell me what to do. The Bible can't tell me what to do. I, I get to just feel it out. Let it go, as Elsa says in Frozen. Just let it go. You guys have seen Frozen, right? Yeah, I know y'all are parents and grandparents. Y'all have seen the movie Frozen, that's what I'm talking about, Disney movie, everybody, can you, yeah, okay, I know you're still with me. You can do the Elsa thing, you can do the Elsa thing, and yet the answer that Paul gives to the, this person is the same answer he would give to that person. You don't understand, you don't understand that when God gave you, when you believed the message that you heard, God gave you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. How can the Holy Spirit put his stamp of approval over something that's still rebellious against God? That still doesn't even like God. He won't. He hasn't. 
You're not a real Christian. That's what he would say. Uh, so either way, the, the, the thing works. Second line of uh, reasoning. He says, look at the scriptures. Not only can you look at Christian experience, but you can look at the Bible itself. Uh, look there at verse 7. He says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham because why? Verse 8, scripture foresaw. You see that in the Bible there? Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and so he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So it's those who rely on faith that are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. And he goes on to describe even more from Scripture. He says, look, listen to what the law says about itself. If if you want to understand why you can't be saved by the law of God, listen to what the law says. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why is that? Because of what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 27, which he quotes. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So there's no like partial things. It's not like I'll obey. If I obey 10%, 15%, 75%, God will cover the other 25%. No, if if you're going to go on your own works, you're going to have to go whole hog. 100%. 100%. You're going to have to keep all the commandments in your actions, in your thoughts, and in your feelings, in every part of who you are. Raise your hand if you've got that one down, if you did that one. And that's what Paul said. That's the whole point of the Bible, is that no one has ever gotten that down. He says, look at verse 11. Clearly, I love that, clearly, no one who relies on the works of the law will be justified before God. We all know the answer. It's clear. None of us have deserved or earned God's love or favor. So, so why is it that once someone becomes a Christian, they would be tempted to start to believe that they could now earn it or that they could now deserve it? You all know how it goes. Uh, you become a Christian and you think, well, I, I'm, I know I'm saved by grace, but now I've got to really pay it back. I, I've got to now earn it to stay in, to keep, to keep it going. I've got, I got to keep it going myself. Well, you know how, how easy that is to fall into believing? Even if someone's never actually taught you that that's the case, it's just human nature to think that's the case, right? To think we can sort of earn it in, re- in retrospect. And Paul says no, absolutely not. Uh, not only does Christian experience speak against it, the Bible speaks against it. Verse 12, the law is not based on faith, he says. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. It's only the person who does them who will live. Problem? You ain't done it. I haven't done it. The person who does it will live by them. The person who doesn't do it will what? Die by them. Die by them. And so it says, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, again from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree or hung on a pole, which is, of course, what we know Jesus underwent for us. He took the ultimate curse, you know, the thing that the Bible says was the worst curse of all, that someone would be put to death, and not just put to death, but hung up in death so that the whole world could jeer at him and look at him and gawk at, this is the end of someone who has disobeyed God. And that happened to Jesus. That happened to our Lord, Jesus. Why? So that you and I could become children of God by faith rather than by what we do. And so it says in verse 14, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. So that by faith we might receive 
the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's the second thing. So he's got Christian experience. Look at your Christian experience. Secondly, look at the Bible. Even the Old Testament, he says, will teach you you can't be saved by works. It's only by grace, through faith. And then lastly, the third thing he says is look at everyday life. Look at everyday life. And so look at verse 15. He says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Okay, think about a human covenant that you have entered into in your life. Anybody got one? Marriage, okay, that's one a lot of people think of. Um, You know, also, if you've ever paid attention to your mortgage papers, there's covenant language in there. To have and to hold, that kind of language is in there, actually. Uh, You probably didn't read it when you signed it. Because you've got to sign too many of those, right, right in a row. But, but there's a covenanting going on. And what he's saying is that even in human covenants, you can't take something in writing and have everybody sign it and then all of a sudden say, wait a minute, I've changed the terms without writing it back down and changing it, right? You can't do that. Uh, even in our American society, we, we judge laws based on the question, is it constitutional or not? You know, And there's all kinds of debates over Is this constitutional? Is that constitutional? Why do we do that? Because the Constitution was a written contract. It was a covenant. And you can't just, you know, randomly decide, private people or even the country can't randomly decide, I'm going to do something different than what that said without changing that in an official process. That's what he's saying. Human covenants, even covenants between sinful people are pretty certain. You can't just willy-nilly decide to change them. You can't call your mortgage company and say, yeah, you know, I decided to pay every three months. And I just decided that. I know I signed the paper, but, you know, I I figured it would be better for my schedule. You you can't do that, can you? And if you you tried to do that, they probably wouldn't, wouldn't what? Let you keep the house very long, would they? Because you've broken the terms. Here he says, if that's true, if that's true of a covenant made between two people, that is really true in a covenant made by God. And so it says, verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture doesn't say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but it says to your seed, Abraham, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law of God, which was introduced 430 years after the promise given to Abraham, does not set aside the covenant that was previously established by God with Abraham, and thus do away with the promise. So if God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, not because of anything you've done, but only because I'm that generous and good. I just love you and I've chosen you. When God came 430 years later at Mount Sinai and said to Israel, here are all the things you must do because you're my people, that did not undo the terms of the covenant God had previously made with Abraham, which were based completely on grace and promise. Instead, it says... If you continue to read on, verse 19, the law was given, it was added because of sin until the seed, Jesus, to whom the promise referred had come. So God brought the law in as sort of a training ground to help Israel prepare for the coming of Christ. But the law itself does not do one thing to add to it. Now, the reason why he's going into all this detail, and I, I realize you might be thinking, well, this doesn't seem at all relevant. You've got to think through it. 
If back then these Jewish believers that we've been talking about were coming to the Galatians and saying, I know you got Jesus, but you need more. You need Moses' law. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the diet laws. You need this, that, and the other in order to be saved. Paul is saying no, because God, when he came to Abraham, way before the law was ever given, saved him just by grace. And the law, whatever the law was meant to do by God, it wasn't meant to save you, because God already settled that issue by covenant with Abraham and all of his descendants. And Christ, it says, is his main descendant. And everybody who believes in Christ joins in that same promise. So that means that as a Christian... The only way you ever stand right with God, ever, from here until eternity in the future, is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, given to you as a gift, received by faith. The law is important because the law tells us how to live, how to express our love for God. But the law cannot save you. If it could, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. He would have just said, here's the law. Go do it. Makes sense. I rest my case. Now let's talk about it. I've got some questions <clears throat> that I want us to discuss here. Stacy, would you mind handing those out? I want to discuss some of these questions with you for a little bit <clears throat> to try to help us get to some practical application of these things. Because <clears throat> I do realize that some of these things in Galatians can seem very far away because we're not, we're not all that bothered by you know, circumcision and things like that. All right, so as uh, those are going around, you're going to see question three. I'm going to start with three tonight. <clears throat> I just want to know, just from your own heart, as, as we've, this is now thir the third week of looking at Galatians, how has justification by faith, what we've been talking about, how has it encouraged you personally? Let's just start there. Number three. How has this encouraged you personally? Yeah. Yeah, and do you feel like, uh, Vivian, you, you have at times lived as if it depended on you or was up to you? Yeah, I know I have a lot of times. Taking Christianity to be like, Jesus helps me be just a little bit better than I am, but basically I'm good and I can do it on my own and Jesus is just an assistant, right? Well, where does that lead in, in the Christian life when we do that? Yeah, yeah, so it'll either go this way or that way, right? Um, you know, it usually goes this way when somebody is a particularly, um, well, what should we say there, a... Organized, uh, organized people, people who like things to be black and white and don't like, you know, the control freaks among us. Can I say that word, control freaks? We tend to veer off in this direction, you know. Everything needs to be the way I like it, the way, or, or sometimes we think the way God says it. And, and we put sort of God behind it, uh, even though really what it is is we're just in a tizzy, personally, right? And, and we don't have the humility to say, you know, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Uh, people who are a little bit more creative and free-thinking, you know, they tend to this direction, right? But either way, it's going to lead to what? Not following Jesus, which is the most serious thing to go wrong in the Christian life. I mean, if in the Christian life you're rendered unable to follow Jesus, 
what are you doing? Like, what, what are you doing being a Christian? What, what exactly are you spending your time on? I'm not sure, you know. And, and I guarantee you, I mean, this is not just my thought. This is what Paul is saying here. If you are, do, if you are living as if Christianity is moralism, or if you're living that Christianity is just a free pass to do whatever you want, you are not following Jesus, either direction. How else has it encouraged you? Thank you, Vivian. This may be a new idea for some of you. It may not be new for others of you, but <clears throat> either way, I hope it's encouraged you. Clint? That's like looking straight down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to have potholes and all this mm-hmm. stuff that happens. It's not going to be, I'm not perfect this side of heaven. But I love that he gives us a place of hope. Yes. And that's encouraging. Isn't it? Yeah. And you know how that when that happens when you're driving and maybe you hit the side and you don't even notice and there's little bumps on the side and they start going and it freaks you out? That's kind of what Paul is doing with Galatians. I mean, think of Galatians as the bumps along the side of the road. Where he's just like, dearest fools, <laughs> you're starting to run off the road, you know. Uh, you're starting to run off the road because you're not keeping your eyes on Jesus. Yeah. Yes, Alex. It's encouraging in the sense that my salvation wasn't based on my performance. Yeah. Yeah, which is such a helpful thing, isn't it? I mean, because can you relate to this on the days when you actually do get up and read your Bible in the morning? You feel like, wow, God loves me. Today is going to be a blessed day. I'm going to get the parking spot right up front. You know, everything's going to go just the way I want it. But then the, then the other days, which is probably most of the days, where you don't get up in time to read the Bible, you feel like, and something bad happens, you think, what? Dang it. I didn't read the Bible, you know, and this is why it's happening, because I didn't read the Bible, right? Isn't that the way we are? And, and the reality is, even though we feel those things so deeply, they're not true. Not at all. Uh, the, you know, the Bible's concept of God's love for his children is, is very solid in the Bible. It is constantly the same, meaning the day you read your Bible, he doesn't love you not one pound more, not one ounce more than the day you failed to. Now, that does not mean you should not read your Bible. Don't take that as, as a speech about that, because that's going off this way, you see. And that's how easy it is. You know, the moment we think, oh, yes, I don't have, my, I have to read my Bible for God to love me. I'll never read it again. Praise the Lord. Suddenly, we're, we're, we're going off away from Jesus here, and it's just as bad, just as dangerous. The point... Well, that's, that's how two of us were in there, too. Yeah. Yes, that's right. 
Yeah, and, and what do you think on those days? Yeah, it's like, hey, well, why not? Why am I doing that? Yeah. Yeah. I did this, this, and this. I did what you told me to do. Yeah. And, and notice in all the, I love that because that's so true. In all those responses, it is completely worlds away from Jesus. Uh, it, it's trying to put God's name over the top of what really is just a dirt, you know, just a really dead end moralism, just a dry, cold. You know, almost like a transactional business relationship with God. I do this, you do that. I do this, you do that. No grace, right? Which is not what Jesus says. Not what Paul says here. Dearest fools, he says. Um, I, I love that, you know, Paul thinks the stakes are so high. I mean, and here's the, the stakes are high. I mean, it's not just a matter of, hey, if you believe the gospel, you really will feel a lot better in your life, which is true, actually. Going off this way and that way is terrible. It's, it's all the ups and downs that we just described. It's like living on a seesaw, as, as uh, one of my mentors always likes to say. It's, it's you, you know, you're up and then you're down, and then you're up and then you're down, based on your performance. But the point that Paul's making is it's not just merely a matter of you're going to feel better if you believe in Jesus and the gospel rather than in your own moral righteousness. It's, it really dishonors God. It's actually you walking around, it's as if you were walking around yelling, Christ died for nothing, Christ died for nothing, Christ died for nothing. Waste of time, waste of time. I mean, how blasphemous. You know, and that's why Paul's so amped about this. He's like, uh, you know, we, we can't do this, guys. I mean, but Paul's living at the earliest point of the church. Imagine if the church had gone in this direction, the direction these false brothers that Paul was talking about last week. Imagine the church had gone with them. We wouldn't be sitting here this morning, y'all. The death of Jesus Christ would not be a concept in the world. Christianity would be just another moralistic religion like Buddhism, Islam, and all the rest. It would be not distinct one bit. And everybody who, who professes to be a Christian who does, in fact, live as if they're saying, Christ, is not, Christ did nothing, Christ did nothing, they are basically, they might as well be Muslims. They might as well be Buddhists. There really is no different. That's what Paul's point is. You say, that's offensive. Yes. Dearest fools. <laughs> uh, but Paul loves to give a little bit of offense uh, in order for us to understand the truth of the gospel that we need to understand. All right. Any other encouragements? And then I do want to get us to these next few questions. But anything else? It's been encouraging. All right. I won't take that as you're not encouraged, just that you're not sharing. All right? <laughs> uh, let's, look, let's look now at, um, let's do number two, because this is so important. What do you think it looks like to have a gospel culture in a church? And how does that come about? So here's what I'm talking about. You know, every church kind of has its beliefs which I could define as what it puts on paper. You know, we just read out of the Shorter Catechism. That's our on-paper beliefs. And you'll never find, in my humble opinion, a finer statement of what justification by faith is than the Shorter Catechism. However, we all know that a church's beliefs don't always walk in line or aren't always in line with their culture. That is, what they actually do. 
how they talk to one another, how they treat one another. This is why Paul, last week we saw, he said to Peter, Peter, I rebuke you. Because Peter, it's not because Peter had bad gospel doctrine. It was because Peter was not walking out gospel culture. He was too afraid to eat with his brothers and sisters because they were Gentiles because he was afraid that the circumcision group was going to criticize him. Right? How do, let's think about this together. How do we get Jesus' gospel beliefs to shape our culture at Greater Hope Church? What does it even look like when a church has gospel culture versus what does it not look like? Very open-ended, but I want to hear what y'all have to say here. Okay, what does that mean, Ed? Yeah. Yeah, reaching out. Now, can a church that doesn't have gospel culture still be very much reaching out? Yeah, have you ever seen that happen? <clears throat> Where evangelism is more, hey, I'm right, you're wrong, I can't wait to tell you about it. <laughs> Come over here, let me tell you. Right? And that's not very gospel culture. You know, that's trying to win arguments, you know, try, trying to spike it on people. But yes, you're exactly right, Ed. When we really do believe the gospel, we won't be able to hold it in. We will not be able to contain it. We will want to tell the people around us, especially those that we have the privilege of knowing personally, uh, but even people we don't. We may even get bold and talk to strangers. Right? What else? Okay. Describe that, John. What does it look like to live it? Because in a sense, that's kind of what the whole category is, right? Living out the gospel. So give me an example, maybe. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, so it's not just something that you see on Sunday morning. Um, this is, I agree with you. A gospel culture is something that you should be able to go to the Allen house on Thursday night and see it. You should be able to go to the Ivancevich house on Saturday morning and see it. And any of our churches, any of our families in the church. I ought to be able to go to, with you to work. Follow you around. <laughs> and, and something of the gospel ought to be like an aroma coming off of you and off of me. Okay, I like that. Now, what is that aroma? What, what is, describe it. Okay. Uh, say more, Ed. That's a broad thing. Good. So how, how would that show itself? Yes, that's right. Genuinely. Yeah, that's right. It's got to be genuine, you know, because aren't, isn't it true that there's a lot of moralistic churches that have a prayer meeting where everybody, you know, and it's mainly, mainly a gossip Let's be honest. Can we be honest about church? It's mainly an opportunity for us to hear every, all the stuff that people are going through rather than an actual, no, I really do care about you and I really want to help shoulder a burden. That, that's the gospel culture, right? True. Jesus bore a burden for me that was as big as a world. 
when he was on the cross. And so I can, I can carry just a tiny little burden from you in what you're going through. Good. Let's keep going. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. Wanting others to be greater. That one is really hard to fake, isn't it? I think maybe reaching out, you can fake it, right? Not saying these are bad ones, but you can fake reaching out. You can fake, really fake loving and caring, you know. Bless your heart. You know, you can do all that stuff and say, I'm going to pray for you, and you never do, right? We can all do that. We all have done it. But it's extraordinarily hard, isn't it, to want someone else to be great, to pretend like you want someone else to be great. Isn't that, it's impossible to fake, really. In other words, rebuking? Rebuking, sure. It could involve rebuking. If you want somebody else to be great, then yeah, you're going to be honest with them. At least when you need to be honest. Is that what you're saying, Gordon? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. It could be, absolutely. Uh, but it also could, could be other ways. It could be encouraging as well, not just rebuking. Clint, what did you have in mind when you said wanting others to be greater in the kingdom? What did you have in mind there? He wanted to advance them. Yes, yeah. Very, Good. Mm hmm, please. Yeah, not plastic. Yeah, so by plastic you mean fake. fake. Yeah, it's what you mean, fake. Okay. And, and why do you think, I, I, I agree with you, but why do you think belief in the gospel rather than this or this, why does that transform a church from being plastic to being real? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, when he saw us in our trouble, he didn't, he could have stayed in heaven. 
and stayed out of it. He didn't have to move towards my mess, did he? But he did. He left something far greater than my friend group, right, uh, to go to something far worse than going to talk to a new person at church. He came all the way down to my sin, my shame, and he took it. Yes, there's motivation from what Jesus did for me. Alex? Welcome back, kids. that a lot yeah because God values things that are very di- in a very different way than we do doesn't he uh, there's certain kinds of people we value and, and usually those things are very superficial that we base that on you know whether, how they look how they dress how they how much money they have all those kinds of things that's how people tend to judge each other uh, color of skin all kinds of other things uh, God doesn't use any of those does he as the reason to value them and so yeah gospel culture is based on God's values uh, we didn't have nearly enough time, because I, I spent too much at the beginning uh, talking to you about the chapter, but I, I really want you to think about question two deeply. If I could encourage you, uh, I know we're going to have a week off, and we're going to come back to chapter four next week, and we're going to have an opportunity again to speak about this gospel culture thing. If you could take some time in the next two weeks to think about that more, pray about that. Uh, maybe ask God, God, what would greater hope look like? if we had more of a gospel culture. And then write it down so that you won't forget what, you, what God is showing you, and we'll come back and share it together. Okay?